looking at a lesson in Hosea, the promise of Hosea, divine faithfulness. We're going to try to scan through uh, chapters 4 through uh, 9 today, see how that goes. Just a, a word on chapter 3, if you go back to chapter 3 of Hosea. Hosea tells uh, Gomer, you shall dwell with me many days. There's going to be a, a strange relationship there, even though it's going to be a loving one. She has uh, committed adultery. And he says to her, you shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. There was going to be some celibacy, at least for an extended period of time, in their own relationship as things were um, becoming better and becoming restored. And then God uses this as an illustration, illustrative of the people of Israel. And just like there's going to be a relationship of celibacy for some time with Hosea and his wife. Verse 4, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or a prince. And so we know that Israel, the, the northern kingdom in 722 of B.C., was taken away and scattered uh, among the Assyrian people and was without a king. Later on, Judah would also be taken over by Babylon in 586. And uh, this whole condition even continues to this day, where uh, right now, even though Israel has been restored, 1948, we believe that that is a, a part of the prophetic plan of God. Not everything has been restored yet. And even though their king has come, the fulfillment of the king was King Jesus. There is a lack of recognition in many ways, as many Jews still do not recognize him as the Messiah. So there is exciting things that are going on as, as there are Jews today who are coming to Christ. And what a joy it is to see when a, a Jewish person turns away from their sin and away from their false notions about God and turns to their Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's interesting walking and even driving through Kingston, how many uh, Jewish people we're seeing move into the community. And our hearts should just say, Lord, would you... Would you speak again to Israel? Would you soften their hearts, Lord, as they have run from you, as they have been without a king, as they have been kingless? Lord, help them to recognize that you are the king. Sometimes I'll see them standing and praying. Or Recently I saw a Jewish man as he was standing on the corner. He just seemed to be kind of staring off into the distance. I don't know if he was praying or, or whatnot. But our hearts go out to them as we, as we think and say, Oh, Lord, would you, would you fulfill your promises? This promise has not been completely fulfilled yet. They have not completely returned. They have definitely not completely returned to their king. But there is hope because someday they're going to. In fact, that's what it says here in verse 5. Afterward, chapter 3, verse 5, the children of Israel shall return. And seek the Lord, their God, and David, their king. This is talking about the Messiah, not necessarily here specifically David, but a descendant of David, one who would come from the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. They will seek David, their king. They will seek Jesus Christ, their king. This will be fulfilled in the millennium as Christ comes and Israel, ethnic Israel, will once again, turn to the Lord. There's going to be a mass revival of the nation of Israel. 
And we look forward to this day as they see him coming. And somehow in concert with his coming, there's going to be a, a return and a turn. Repentance as they come back to the Lord. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So we are, we are still waiting for that. We even say, even now, come. Even now, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer. That's what we're waiting for. And oftentimes we're not thinking about the fact that Jesus Christ is actually coming again. He's coming bodily. He's coming in the skies. We are going to see the Lord as he comes for us, his children, and as he comes for a revived Israel. And we wait for that day expectantly. I've been doing a, quite a bit of reading here lately on heaven, what heaven is like what the future is like, and oh, is it wonderful. I was uh, thinking the other day about John, and I was thinking to myself, I wonder what John is doing today. I wonder what he's doing. I think there is uh, good evidence that uh, people in heaven know what's going on on earth. We don't know all that they know. The Bible isn't specifically clear on the extent of their knowledge, but it does seem clear that they know about the events that are taking place on earth that they're watching. The martyrs in Revelation are watching earth, and they're saying, oh, Lord, avenge. Avenge what has happened to your, to your martyrs. So they're, they're watching carefully. I think there is something to it when somebody says, Grandma is looking over me, or Grandpa is watching down on me. Now, we know that there are only two places you can go when you die. There's no third place. There's no purgatory. There's no holding chamber. And hell is a real place. It's not a state of mind. It's not just this place where you go and you kind of float around and kind of have this fun time, crack open a six-pack. Listen, hell is, a, is an isolated place of torment. It's a real place. And uh, so is heaven. Heaven is a real place. But as horrifying as hell is, and there are times that we get a foretaste of hell even today. Some people say, well, I'm in hell right now. Oh, no, you're not. Oh, no, you're not. But listen, there are times we get foretastes of hell even in this life. And it's the same thing with heaven. Heaven is equally beautiful and wonderful. And so we await the day when Jesus Christ comes back and we await with Israel and those who believe, those Jewish people who do believe. And we say, come, Lord, start the millennium. Let's see this thing begin to happen. Restore your kingdom here even on earth. But the sad thing is at this point, Israel has played the part of a harlot. God has said, just like Gomer has had this devastating affair, and we call it an affair in this country, it's probably not the right word, it's adultery. And she has committed adultery again and again. This is uh, heart-wrenching as we read these words. There probably is no more painful word than the word adultery. When we think about somebody who says, I'm no longer going to be faithful to my spouse, and they begin to walk out, and Hosea pleads with her, and he tries to get her back, but she refuses, and finally she says, I'm just leaving for good. And she heads out, and she goes after her lovers to the point of rejection. And then, of course, Hosea comes back and buys her. And God says to Israel, you have played the part of the harlot. I'm giving you this illustration so that you understand the depths of your sin. 
There must come a, a point in every person's life where we say, I am a sinner. I have cheated on God. I should have been faithful. I should have been righteous. I should have obeyed the laws of God. But instead of following God, I was born in sin. I was conceived in iniquity. Instead of following after the things of God, I have turned my back on him. I have committed adultery on him. And when we begin to see that, when we begin to see the glory of Christ, then our hearts become rent and we begin to understand what it really means to violate God, to defame the, the, the name of God. So he says to Israel, you have committed adultery on me. You have, Israel, you have played the part of the harlot. Look with me at chapter 5, Hosea chapter 5, verse 3. Hosea chapter 5, verse 3. I know Ephraim. Ephraim was the leading tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, Hosea is predominantly here talking to the northern kingdom, and he's using Ephraim as synonymous with Israel. So he's saying, O Ephraim, or O Israel, the same thing. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. O now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Israel is stained. Israel is marred. It's interesting in my life, no matter how hard I try, I can wear a clean shirt. And at my age, you would think I'd be able to eat properly. And uh, I try to have manners. But no matter how hard I try, if I'm eating a hot dog, I always end up with a little ketchup or mustard on my white shirt. I just, I just can't stop that. And it's weird. I'll probably go into my 50s and 60s doing the same thing. And so uh, I'll eat and I'll come home with crumbs of something on me. I won't even notice. And Crystal will say, what is that? And I'll say, oh, well, that, that was part of lunch, I guess, and just saving a little something. To defile the shirt. I know what that's like. And you see babies who are um, maybe one or two years old, and they're learning to eat. And uh, they, they get this bowl of spaghetti. In fact, we get pictures of them. And they're, they're eating this bowl of, of food. And uh, they have food all over themselves. And we'll even, we'll even say how cute that is. They have spaghetti sauce over their head, all over their head, and all down their bib and across their clothes. They have defiled their clothes. And God is coming to Israel and he's saying, you have defiled yourself with sin. You have, you, have, you have stained yourself. You have sinned against me. The clothing that I gave you, you have stained. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 2. Here's how they have stained themselves. There is uh, swearing. They're stained with swearing. The way that they speak is unholy. Instead of speaking like the Lord, they don't speak like the Lord. There is lying. There is murder. There is stealing. There is committing physical adultery. They're committing adultery on one another. So they're swearing. They're lying. They're murdering. They're stealing. They're committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. They're killing one another. Therefore, the land mourns. It's interesting when a nation is given over to sin, given over to swearing, given over to lying, over to murdering, over to cheating, even the country begins to languish. 
There's the effects of sin in a nation. It's not just personal. It's not just sin just affects me. Oh, it does just affect us, but it affects even more than us. The land itself mourns, it says here. And all who dwell in it languish. There's this panting. There's this weariness as, as sin has this wearying effect on a people and it has it on a land. A, a nation gets tired. A nation cannot continue to go on when people are just saying, you know what, we're going to forsake the Lord. We're going to commit spiritual adultery on God. We're not going to follow after God. We're going to leave God over here. But yet we're going to have a life of peace and a life of goodness and a wonderful life. We're trying to have this great life. Listen, it's not possible. The further that we get away from God, the, the more that we reject him, the more that we say no to God, the more we languish, the more our nation languishes, the more the land itself languishes languishes. You think about our land here even today. Is there a genuine happiness that pervades in America? There definitely wasn't here in Israel. The land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. And even the fish of the sea are taken away. There's physical repercussions because of sin. You say, well, this this drought is just coincidental. Or the fact that we're not being blessed, that's all just coincidental. Oh, no. No, no. According to the scripture, it's directly connected with a nation's sin. It was directly connected with Israel's sin. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 8. We see the, the extent of the, the wickedness here. Chapter 6, verse 8. Gilead, here it says, is a city of evildoers. The, the nation is... Wicked, it's filled with wicked people. It's filled with those who are, says here in verse 8, who are tracked with blood. And you would think that once a person and a nation begins to see their sin, they would say, you know what, I'm going to turn back to the Lord. We're going to stop sinning. We're, we're seeing the effects of this. It's devastating in our life. It's devastating in our family's life. It's devastating in our city's life and in our nation's life. Surely we're going to turn back to him and say, oh, Lord, we're so sorry. Wouldn't that be awesome if the doors of the church opened here on Sunday morning and we had hundreds of people streaming in and we had to have revolving services as people were just prostrate before the Lord saying, we're so sorry for our sin. Lord, we're sorry for cheating on you. We're sorry for committing spiritual adultery. We get it as our heart breaks as we read this story about Hosea and Gomer. And then you open our eyes to help us realize it's Israel, but it's not only Israel. It's us, Lord. It's us. Help us, Lord. Listen, this is what we are praying for in revival. In the darkness of any time, people say, well, there's not much hope anymore. That's why we need revival. And so there are times where churches get together. People in the church say, oh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to seek the Lord's face, and we're going to ask the Lord that he would open our eyes to our sins that we would become a holy people, a separate people, not a legalistic people, but a people who are truly set apart, not just trying to have church to have church and be cool and bring all the cool stuff in so we're cool. That's not what this is about. This is really about knowing the Lord. But listen, until our hearts are stirred, until our hearts are changed, there is going to be no true change in our own lives or in the lives of this nation. So you would think 
You would think that when all this is happening, there would be a turn. Have you ever known somebody and you said to yourself, surely this situation in their life is going to cause them to turn? Surely they've gotten to the point now where they're going to say, enough. I'm, I'm going to turn back to the Lord. I, I've gotten tired of doing it my own way, and I recognize it. Doing it my own way is not working. I'm finally going to turn back to the Lord. That's not what we see here, though. Notice what happens in chapter 5, verse 13, when they see their sickness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wounds, so God comes in and he disciplines Israel. He comes in and he disciplines the southern kingdom eventually, prophetically. You think that they would turn to the Lord. God, we're sorry. We recognize that we're sinners. God, we, we, we understand that we have defiled ourselves. We have stained our clothes. Our hands are stained with blood. Lord, we recognize that. We ask you for your forgiveness. But instead of turning to the Lord, it says here in verse 13, then Ephraim went to Assyria. So instead of saying, I'm going to find my answer in God, I'm going to trust in God. No, no, I'm going to trust in another nation. I'm going to trust in political figures. I'm going to trust in the kingdoms of man. So Ephraim goes to Assyria and sent to the great king. But God says here, he's not able to cure you. He's not able to help your defilement. How is he going to bind up your wounds? How is he going to purify you from your spiritual adulteries? How is he going to cleanse you? It's not just good enough to go to another nation. We need cleansing, cleansing. That's what the Lord is, is asking here. How is he going to help you? How is he going to be able to cure, cure you? He is not going to be able to help your, your wound. So what is spiritual adultery? Well, we could say it's we could say it's lying, we could say it's cheating. We could say it's anything that we know that we're doing that is not of the Lord. We could say that's all true, that's all spiritual adultery. Anytime we sin, sin is lawlessness. Anytime we break the commands of God, anytime we go against his character, another definition of sin is when we miss the mark. Anytime we miss the mark, we are sinning. And therefore, committing spiritual adultery. But the Bible here actually sums up exactly what spiritual adultery is. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Here it is. Here is what spiritual adultery is summed up. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Here's what spiritual adultery is. We could go into this long list of sins. We could say it's this, it's this, and it's this. But the Lord here encapsulates it. He summarizes exactly what spiritual adultery is when he says this. There is no faithfulness. That word faithfulness could be translated truth. Emeth. Truth. There is no truth in the land. Nobody loves the truth. This is what he is saying spiritual adultery is. And he's saying there's, there's no fixed foundation. There's no surety. There's, there's no truth. There's no desire for that which is fixed. Everybody's just doing what they want. Everybody's just saying this is right in my own eyes. This is how I feel. Therefore, it must be true. We have this uh, terminology today where people talk about their truth. 
Well, I'm just living out my truth. We hear this all the time. It's my truth. I'm just trying to live out my truth. Listen, there's only one truth. And the question is, are we aligning ourselves to the truth? We have given into this lie that says my subjective opinion is the truth. So if you hurt me or if, or somebody says this is the truth, well, if I'm offended, then I'm not going I'm not going to follow it. And God says here that the essence of spiritual adultery is a lack of a love for the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in its definition of what love is, one of the one of the things that Paul says about love is he says this, love rejoices in the in the truth. Jesus said this, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the, the truth and the life. You want to know what a Christian is? It's a, it's a person who loves the truth. They love the truth. They say, Lord, even if this is going to afflict me, Lord, even if this is going to hurt my pride, Lord, even if this is going to break me down, God, I want to walk in the truth. Lord, I want to know the truth. I want to be set free in the truth. Listen, this morning, are there things in your life right now you're saying, I'm living a lie in a certain area? I'm not living in the truth. Listen, as long as we live in that lie, as long as we continue in our sin saying, no, no, Lord, I'm not going to live in the truth. Listen, we're going to be in bondage. There comes a point where we say, Lord, I want to know the truth. Humble me. Break me. Lord, would you make me about the truth? Would you make my family about the truth? Lord, would you make this church about the truth? Truth? What is the truth? Lord, your word is truth. Lord, that's what we want. Lord, would you make our city a, a city? Can you imagine the city of Wolfsbear full of people who love the truth? The truth. You know how easily people lie today? Just lie. Jesus comes along and says, listen, spiritual adultery is people who are in love with lies instead of loving the MF, the truth. Look with me at Psalm chapter 25, verse 5. Psalm chapter 25. Psalm chapter 25. Psalm chapter 25, verse 5. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Here it is. This is the, this is the exact uh, same word here as we have in our text. Lead me in your what? In your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Oh, God, thank you that you are the God of truth. So he defines spiritual adultery in its essence as a people that does not love faithfulness, they do not love the truth, and they do not love mercy or steadfast love. They're not merciful to one another. They're not kind. One of the marks of a Christian is their love for other people, the way that they treat people. When Christ transforms our heart, when he changes us, when he makes us new, he not only gives us a love for God, he gives us a love for other people around us. We can honestly say about this church, it's our beloved church. 
I love the people in this church. I was um, listening to Alistair Begg preach, and he was talking about phrases that he uses that sometimes others pick up. And they have uh, an internship there, evidently, for young pastors who are coming through. And he said he noticed this one young guy who was coming through the program was referring to people and addressing people in that church and his church there as beloved. And this young fellow kept saying, dearly beloved or my beloved to the church. And Alistair Begg thought to himself, and I think he later talked with him, that you have to earn that. That Alistair Begg has spent years there loving the people so that when he says it, my beloved, he means it because it's coming from a deep relationship with the people. This guy wasn't, um, he wasn't doing anything wrong. It's just that he hadn't come to the place where he really understood what that meant. He was just simply using it as a cliche. And God help us if we say, well, we, well, we love each other, but we don't treat each other with kindness. We're not gracious to one another. Our speech is not salted with gentleness and with wisdom and with respect. And Israel was a place at this time that had become extremely selfish. Families were becoming selfish. The nation was becoming selfish. They were not treating people well. They had lots of rules. They had lots of rules. And they were very religious, but they lacked love. You know, you can tell some when somebody really loves a person. Yes, love is a choice. And there are times we have to say, you know what? Um, I'm going to simply just make the choice to love. I'm going to just love even though I don't feel like it. That's, that is love. But there must come a time in, in our hearts when our heart is changed and we actually feel love when we want to love. I've been praying to the Lord recently. I've been saying, Lord, help me to love. I mean, really love. But I'm not a loving guy by my own nature. In fact, I'm a very unloving person. Lord, Lord, help, help me to understand what, it, what does it mean to actually love people like you love them. In fact, it was Jesus Christ who quoted this verse in the New Testament. If you go over to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. The Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they're saying, how, how can you eat with these, these tax collectors and these sinners? How can you eat with prostitutes? Isn't that risky? Isn't it? Have you ever even heard people say this? I, I can never figure this out. Isn't it risky? Isn't it, isn't it hard down there in South Wilkesbury? And I always think to myself, I'm not sure what you're talking about. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. But here's Jesus. He's eating with the, the women who have had abortions, so to speak. And he's eating with people who have committed adultery. And he's eating with men who have, um, who have gone in their carriages or in modern day times in their cars to pick up the prostitute on the street. He's sitting there and he's, he's talking with them and he's having a good time. He's holy and he's preaching the gospel to them. But he's doing it in a way where they feel loved. They feel like people. The Pharisees are watching this, and they're the religious leaders. They're the ones who have everything together. 
And Jesus is having this conversation with them, and he ends up quoting this exact text in Hosea. He says, go and learn what this means in verse 13 of Matthew 9. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire that you would treat people with love and tenderness. I I desire that you would treat people as if they're not below you, but you're, you're equals as fellow sinners who... Who need Christ. You might have everything together outwardly. You might have lots of rules that you're able to manage to figure out on how you're going to follow them in some way, hypocritically. But Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. This is from the heart of the Father. Here's how I desire things. I desire that you would be merciful to one another. I would desire that you're not just merciful at the soup kitchen. It's easy to be merciful at the soup kitchen. Here's your soup, here's your salad, here's your bread on your way. That's easy. It's much harder to be merciful in your home. It's it's much harder to be kind and loving to those you're close with. It's much harder to be loving to people that you see every week at home group and every week at church. And personalities begin to rub each other the wrong way. It's very easy to go out and do some kind of service. I love missions trips, and I can't wait to go with this group of young people to El Salvador what a treat that's going to be. But in all candor, that's relatively easy. The truth is, is is our life changed to the extent of where we, number one, we love the truth. And number two, we love people and we're merciful to people. We're compassionate to people. We treat them with steadfast love. This is, this is the opposite of spiritual adultery. And then Hosea gives us a last thing. He gives us a third thing about spiritual adultery. He says this in chapter 4, verse 1, if you go back to Hosea. He says, um, there's no faithfulness, there's no truth, there's no steadfast love, there's no, there's no mercy. This is a generalization of the state of things in Israel. And then the last indictment, the last thing that he says about Israel is he says this, there's no knowledge of God in the land. Here, here's the essence of spiritual adultery. Here's exactly what it comes down to. People don't know God. To know God, not to know things about him. It's very easy to know things about him, but the problem is spiritual adultery starts and begins with the fact that we don't know God. We don't love him. We don't have a right relationship with him. We don't hunger after him. Listen, this is why we're praying Sunday after Sunday. Lord, burn our hearts so that we know you more. Lord, we want to know you. We don't want to just know the things about you, but we want to know you, Father, and we want to know your Son whom you've sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to magnify him. We want to glorify him. You want to talk about a dry community? Dead community? You want to talk about a dead religious community? It's a community that has lots of religion, lots of sermons. They're dry, empty sermons. Lots of singing, but the songs are spiritless. There's no filling of the Holy Spirit. 
There's no coming in with a thirst for God. God, I want you. I want to know you. That's, that's the essence of what true religion is, is to, is to know God, is to come to a right relationship with him and exalt in his son, Jesus Christ. And so there comes a, a point in our life where we say, Lord, I want to know you. If you don't know the Lord, that begins by saying, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me for spiritual adultery. Lord, I want to know you. I believe in Jesus Christ to be my Savior. And then that continues for the rest of our life as a Christian, as the Lord prompts us as we grow closer and closer to him. Oh, yeah, there's lots of sin in the believer's lives. There's lots of problems. We're constantly brought back to the place of where we just say, Lord Jesus, I, I want to know you. So you walk into, listen, you walk into a church, you walk into a religious community that has lots of rules and goes through all the formalities of religion but doesn't know God, you want to talk about a boring place, you want to talk about a sad place, a despairing place, it's a church without the knowledge, not just head knowledge, but without the true knowledge applied to the heart that comes through the word of God. So he says this, you have committed spiritual adultery, and this spiritual adultery has impaired them. It's damaged them. It's weakened them. They think that they're doing okay, but they're not doing okay. They're impaired. You ever seen a person who is inebriated with alcohol? They're they're impaired. The, The other day I was coming out to pick up Ariel at work, and I came down the, the stairs of our uh, outside home there, the porch, and I got into the car, and as I was pulling out, it was raining. It was very late at night. It was raining. It was very dark. And as my headlights hit our lawn, there was a man laying on our lawn in the rain, and his eyes, he just looks up at me, and he has a bicycle that's just laid out there in a bag of goods that's just spread out on our lawn. And I'm thinking to myself, I need, you know, I need to stop and speak with him, but I've got to, got to go get Ariel. So I called Crystal and I said, Hey, you know, hon, would you, would you call the police? We've got a, a guy laying on our lawn. So I come back and the police had not come yet, and he's he's still there. To make a very long story short, they ended up coming. He was, um, he was inebriated. He was uh, completely drunk. It was a sad thing as we're standing there talking with him as the police officer is talking with him. He pulled out his driver's license. He was from California. He was looking for the bus station. He had missed it. He wasn't anywhere close. But he had become impaired. He didn't know it. He'd become weakened. He didn't know it. He was he was damaged by the alcohol. He didn't he didn't realize it. And sin does the exact same thing. Spiritual adultery does the same thing. It it changes us. It weakens us. It damages us. It impairs us. This this is what spiritual adultery does. Flip with me to chapter 7 here. Chapter 7 of Hosea. Chapter 7, verse 9. God is talking about Israel. And he says this about strangers. He says this, strangers devour his strength. That is, strangers have come in and have devoured the strength of Israel. And he knows it not. Here's a nation that is being weakened and they don't even get it. 
Does that even sound possible? A nation, let's think here for just a second, a nation that seems really strong but is actually really weak and doesn't get it. And this is what is going on with Israel. They're, they're seemingly very strong, and yet God is saying, you've committed all the sin, you're, you're weakening yourself, you're impairing yourself, you don't, you don't even get what you're doing to yourself, you, you know it not. Gray hairs, it goes on to say there in verse 9, are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. There's this wonderful narrative, if you go back to Judges chapter 16, of a person who lost his strength, and he didn't even realize it. If you go back to Judges chapter 16, Judges 16, verse 15, this uh, story of Samson, Samson the strong man, he was uh, taking the Nazarite vow, and one of the things that uh, these people did was they had to grow their hair long and not cut it. And it wasn't that their hair had this mystical strength to it, but God used that as a symbol of the strength that he was giving to them. I was talking to Lydia about this the other day, and she brought up Samson. She said, did his hair really make him strong? Was it his actual hair? And I said, no, it wasn't his actual hair. It was that God gave him the strength, but God told him to have long hair, and as long as he had it, he would have his strength. It was, a, it was a symbol of the Lord's strength that he had given him, much like communion. When we take the bread, we're not actually eating the body, or when we drink the juice, we're not actually drinking his blood. But he was commanded, as long as you have this long hair, you'll have your, you'll have your strength. But if you cut your hair off, Samson, you're going to lose your strength. So now he's with Delilah, this woman who's not a woman of God, and she's begging him. She's saying, I want to know the source of your strength. I, would you please tell me? Tell me what's going on. Tell me why you're so strong. And so he has tricked her a number of times. And finally, she's vexed. She is disturbed. He doesn't want to tell her because I think he even senses something's going on here, but he finally gives in. He's in lust. Verse 15 of Judges 16. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. She kept saying, Please tell me the source of your strength. Please tell me. Tell me the source. And finally he gives in. And he told her all his heart in verse 17 and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and like any other man. Now Delilah senses something is going on, so she's saying, Tell me the source of your strength. Tell me. But she wants to deceive him, much like he has deceived as well. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the Lord of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all of his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him, and his strength left him. So she's tormenting him. She is 
She is vexed with the fact that he has not told her. Now she realizes he has finally told her the source of his strength. And now his strength is gone. His hair has been cut. He went to see Dan. And his hair is gone. And then she said, she's this kind lady, right? The Philistines are upon you, O Samson. He awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. Here's the key. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. It was the Lord who gave him the strength. And God is coming to Hosea and he's saying, listen, Israel has given themselves to other lovers and they don't even realize their strength is gone. Do you know that people can be like this today? They're sinning and they're sinning and they're sinning and they're not listening. And they don't realize that the blessing of the Lord is gone. They don't realize the effect that it has had on themselves. They don't realize that they have become weaker and weaker. It's like the alcoholic who just keeps drinking and drinking, saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And everybody else is saying, but you're weaker. You're impaired. Don't you, don't you realize the effect that, that sin has had on you? And this is the blinding effect of sin. We look at ourselves and we say, we're absolutely fine. We're full of strength and vigor and we're okay with God. We go to church. God is coming and is saying, no, 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 you don't see yourselves rightly. You do not realize that your strength is gone. It's depleted. Not only is their strength depleted, look at verse 13 of chapter 7. Verse 13. Go back to verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense. So she has no common sense. This is the problem with sin. We lose Rationality, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. Verse 13 says that they have strayed from me. Instead of repenting, you think that they would repent. No, they don't repent. They cry a lot. Look at verse 14. They do not cry to me from their hearts. A lot of people crying, oh, the situation I'm in. Oh, it's so horrible. This this, uh, this situation I'm in, it's not really sin. It's just the situation. I can't believe it. And they cry great crocodile tears, lots and lots of tears. But there's no repentance. They do not cry to me from their heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. To summarize what this is doing, this impairment, notice chapter 8, verse 7. For they sow the wind. They sow the wind. Listen, you sow the wind. If you sow wheat, you're going to get wheat. If you sow corn, you're going to reap a harvest of corn. If you sow wind, if you sow sin, if you sow this continual spiritual adultery, for they sow the wind, and they're going to reap the whirlwind. In the end, there's a final rejection. If you go over to chapter 9, God is talking about Israel. He says, every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I begin to hate them. Strong language. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. God says, I'm going to come 
They're not listening. They're not softening. They should be softening their hearts. They're not repenting. They're not coming back to me. I'm going to drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Verse 17, my God, this is, this is devastating. My God will reject them. So here is a, a nation, much like Gomer that, Gomer, that is going after their sin. Instead of turning back to the Lord and repenting of their sin, they will not repent. They wail on their beds. They cry. They don't make any sense. They don't recognize that their strength is gone. But instead of coming back to the Lord, they do not turn back to the Lord. Is there any hope in a situation like this? This is pretty dire. Adultery, spiritual adulteries. Now we come to the core of our text, and we're going to close with this. If you go to chapter 6, chapter 6. Is there any hope in all of this? Spiritual adultery, spiritual adultery with its impairment. What's the hope? We can't heal ourselves. No self-help book is going to heal us, is going to change our hearts. No TV show, no talk show, no counseling session apart from the word of God is going to help us. Just trying to do things on our own, turning to friends is not going to help us if they're not counseling us in the ways of God. So is there any hope? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. Oh, there's hope here. And you say, well, wait a second. The story of Gomer, we just know that she went back with Hosea, but what was the end of the story of Gomer? Did she ever get things right? Did she, did she always keep straying? Well, we know the answer because we know what God is going to do with Israel. Is he going to leave them finally? No. Does he ever leave his children? No. Does he discipline those whom he loves? Yes. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. This is the Lord's doing. What is the Lord going to do? He's going to heal us. Now the gospel is preached in the next verse. Notice this and see if this sounds familiar. Verse 3, after two days he will revive us. And on the third day, the third day. What is that about? The third day. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. You know what Hosea is saying? The only way we're going to be cleansed, and there is hope. Listen, there is hope in the darkest situations in life. There's hope. And there's only hope because of one reason. And one word and one person, and that's Jesus. He's our hope. See, what the law does, it comes and it makes us feel like, oh, wow, we're, we're this, we're sinners, we see the spiritual adultery. God, we, we see that. And then God comes and he says this. He gives us an encouraging word. Listen, there's hope for every person in this room. And there is hope for every person in this world who will listen to the words of Scripture. The only way, the only way to be healed is not through ourselves, but it's through Jesus Christ. 
And here's what Jesus did. The Bible says he not only died, but on the what day? On the third day, he rose, listen, to heal us. Now, I want to give you one last text if you go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is our last text for today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. If you remember, God is using these different names of Hosea's children. You're not my people. Now, notice what 1 Peter says. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we saw that Gomer was bought for 30, uh, basically 30 shekels, 15 shekels plus food that was worth another 15. She was bought for 30 shekels. Jesus was sold for 30 shekels. He became sin, who knew no sin. So that we might know him, he died on the cross and rose on the third day so that we might know God. And now what does God say about us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10? He says this, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were not a people, that sounds very familiar. That's Hosea chapter 1. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Can I ask you a question? Are you glad that you are one of God's people? I'm so glad, and it's only by his grace. Would you stand with me as we close our service? Father, we thank you for this uh, the story of Hosea. In many ways, it's tragic, but in, 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 in all truth, Lord, it's the greatest story ever told. Lord, that you can take people who have committed sin against you. And because of our sin, Lord, you have rightly turned your back on us. And yet in Jesus Christ, you loved us. And so, Lord, you did not turn your back on us finally. Oh, yes, Lord, you handed us over to our own sin. That was our own doing, our own choosing. And for that, Lord, we're sorry. But, Lord, we thank you today that because of Jesus Christ being resurrected from the dead on the third day, that we have hope and we have life because of him. And it's only because of Jesus. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're standing here today and you are a believer and there are just some things in your life that the Lord has been convicting you about, it's not that you're not a believer, but you're just saying there has been some spiritual adultery in my life. There have been sins in my life that I know the Lord has been speaking to me about, even as we're going through this text, and I need to repent today, and I need to bring that to the Lord. Would you raise your hand? I'm a believer, but I need to deal with some things in my life. That's you. Would you raise your hand? Anyone else? Anyone else? Okay, anyone else? Praise the Lord. Anyone else? need to deal with some things. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, our only hope. He's our only hope. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you've never come to Christ, and um, you recognize also that you're a sinner, but you don't know what to do. And today Jesus is saying, if you will turn to me, as we talked about earlier, with faith and believe in him alone, 
to save you from judgment, to save you from hell. He will do it in a moment's time. He will do it in a moment's time. You say, I need Jesus Christ, not for the second or third time. This is the first time you're coming to Christ. That's you. Would you raise your hand and say, I need Jesus today. I need to be saved. I want to go to heaven with Christ. Is there one here today? You need Christ. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the way that you're moving here. We thank you for your precious people, your beloved people. We thank you for the the way you love us. You love us. Oh, how you love us. We thank you for your amazing grace. We pray this in Jesus' name.